Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet, the go-to podcast for parents with multiple kids, especially those with twins, triplets, or more, who are navigating the maze of modern family life and personal finance. Whether you're overwhelmed by education or retirement planning, parenting dilemmas, career transitions, or trying to define your purpose and plan, we're here to guide you with empathy, encouragement, and expertise. Hosted by Paul Fenner, founder of Tama Capital, a certified financial planner and parent to four kids, including a set of triplets, our podcast is your ally in the quest for financial peace of mind, proving that money matters, but family comes first. Subscribe now and join our community of empowered parents at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What does comprehensive financial planning even mean? At Tama Capital, it means a family office where lifestyle planning such as retirement, college, portfolio management, tax prep and planning, all are under one umbrella. But it goes beyond numbers. We focus as much on the emotional side of financial planning as we do on the financial side. We get you. We understand your challenges of building a family, business or career, and a healthy life. We are devoted to wealth planning for families like yours because we are you. Learn how our family can help your family by visiting TamaCapital.com. How do we make the time that we do have rich? I think this is a question that many of us ask ourselves, but especially parents who are balancing or trying to manage multiple careers, multiple kids, plethora of activities, you name it. I think this is also a question that Cassie Holmes, a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, asked herself. And she took that question and turned it into a book called Happier Hour. How to beat distraction, expand your time, and focus on what matters most. I think this conversation with Cassie is one that, whether you're a parent or non-parent, I think we're all trying to figure out how do we make the best use of our time. Please enjoy my conversation with Cassie Holmes. So Cassie, I think the best place for us to start would be, you've written this incredible book called Happier Hour. And I would like to know, what what was the genesis behind it? Like why, why Happier Hour? Behind the title or behind writing the book? Both. (laughs) Start with, start with, let's start with why you wrote the book and then we'll get into happier hour. Yeah. As someone who works full time, and at that point, it was an assistant professor when I was living in Philly and I was at Wharton. And actually, even beyond before that, I have always felt like I haven't had enough time to do what I set out to do. Like so many, the sort of feeling of time poverty, right? Of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And then that sense of time poverty just went skyrocketed when I became a mom. 
And as an assistant professor at Wharton, I had a four-month-old and I said yes to give a talk up in New York um, at Columbia. And I had traveled up to New York and it was just one of these crazy days where I'm sort of rushing between meetings and um, then this dinner and then like frantically trying to get to the train to catch the last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and husband asleep in Philly. And I made the train, but sitting there watching the night lights whiz by and I was fully and absolutely and utterly exhausted. And I was like, I don't know if I can keep up, right? Between the pressures of work, wanting to be a good partner, a good friend, the never ending pile of chores, it just was too much. And I considered, despite having worked so hard, to get to where I was, I was like, I just can't do it. So I, I think the solution is like to give up <laughs> everything. And and um, instead of though giving up, I was like, actually, hold on a sec. I am a social psychologist who has been studying the role of time for happiness. And maybe I can actually figure this out empirically, right? Maybe I can start sort of testing questions that will answer how do we do it? How do we invest our time for greater fulfillment and happiness? How do we spend the hours of our days so that at the end of the week, even if we're busy and our schedule is full, we can feel fulfilled? How do we spend our time so that our entire lives don't pass by in this blur that I was experiencing at that time. And so I didn't quit. Instead, I... Which I'm glad you did not. <laughs> in hindsight, I am glad that I didn't either. <laughs> um, I've been testing that and my research has answered some of the questions and then looking to what some of my colleagues have also identified in their work. I was like you know what, there's actually a lot of insight here and I want to teach it to my students. So as a business school professor, I sort of approached the administration and I'm like, I want to teach a course on happiness. How do we invest our time for greater happiness? There was some convincing there because they're like, this is a business school. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but it matters. And then I like gave my whole spiel with all the data to back up just how much it matters. And in teaching the course, I saw the immediate impact on my students' well-being during the course. But also now that I've taught it uh, for a few years, I hear from former students how the insights and the learnings continue to benefit them. And so when I was approached to write a book based off of the course, I was like, absolutely, because not everyone can sit in my 10-week course at UCLA Anderson. Um, but these learnings from the research can benefit people. And so I wrote the book so that a broader audience could benefit from it. And now to your question, why the title? And because I am not interested in just one hour, right? It's right. like, that is not the goal, but recognizing that our hours sum up to our days and those days sum up to the years of our lives. How do we invest those hours so that our weeks and our years are fulfilling. And then happier hour, because it's not just about getting to happiness and you're done, right? 
happier is because the decisions we make in the day-to-day of what we focus on and what we do, it's about feeling better than we would otherwise. Um, And so that's that point. And, you know, I'm a marketing professor, so people associate happy hours with something positive, but of course that has nothing to do with actually drinking, but it does have something to do with social connection. So... (laughs) There's a lot to unpack there. And the, the the thing I couldn't, there's two things I want to touch on is first off, like, like a, like a fine cocktail since, since we're on that subject, uh, a good old fashioned. Cause that's what I, I drink bourbon. You could oh, not have, I, like I don't Manhattan. think you could pair. I don't think you could pair two, two books, happy hour with your colleague, Hal Hirschfield's future self together like those two books like if you were to read it in back-to-back settings or sittings if you will i think that's like a, a grand slam so and i know i owe hal who i've had on the show I'll, I'll link to his his conversation in the show notes um uh a drink for helping me to get you on the show um because you're both our colleagues at at uh, ucla um but i think where where were you the other point that you touched on was basically you just explained what I do as a financial advisor where I work with families who are juggling all of these multiple not only financial but personal priorities and mm-hmm. I think that's what when I read the the you know opening to your book and and you you laid out that example I'm like this is everybody that I talk to this is everybody I work with and for the most part parents are the ones that that listen to this show and that's why I wanted you on so badly because you're talking this talk talking about this to students and yeah. now I want to flip the chair a little bit and like have you talked to parents about how in the world do we do we manage all this and so I think as we you know go through our conversation that will be like the thread that we that we really pull on so the one thing that I found interesting in reading the book is that there are specific hours within the day that you're naturally better at some things versus others. Can you go into a little depth about that? And then again, there'll always be this coming at it from a from a parenting standpoint. Yeah. And even before answering a really good question, because it's so pragmatic and helpful, um, speaking to parents and that role of time poverty, that's where it really kicked in like really kicked in for me. Um, But now that I'm doing the research on time poverty and seeing, like we conducted a survey among a nationally, a big and nationally representative sample of Americans and to see who is it that feels time poor. And (laughs) not surprisingly, (laughs) yeah. And in particular, it's parents of young kids. So parent with kids under four and then working parents, particularly when your partner is working. Um, And then you do also see um, stay at home parents who do not work for pay. Um, They also feel extremely time poor. So it's really the drivers of time poverty are work pressures and parental pressures. And particularly if you are working with young kids and your partner is working too, holy moly, like we are just on that far, far extreme. Um, What's interesting, you then also see that um, parents of kids who are still in the house, so up until they're 18, 
um, do continue to feel time poor. What's also fascinating, and this is something to put a lot of these things into context and perspective, is the folks who feel the least time poor and sort of most time affluent, but actually affluent sounds necessarily positive and based off of work that Hal and I did, I can speak to that having a whole lot of time isn't actually necessarily positive. Um, the people who feel as like they have a lot of time are retirees and empty nesters. So parents where your kids have left the home. And interestingly, those empty nesters feel like they have more time available to them than folks who don't have kids at all, like younger people. Um, and I think that's really uh, important to point out because it shows that our subjective experience of how much time we have is in fact subjective. That's the sense of how much time we have available to achieve what we set out to do. And also that subjectivity, we're always influenced by reference points, right? So it's these tough years, particularly when you have a young kid and then they go to school and you're like, oh my gosh, I can breathe again and maybe even write a book. That's when I, you know, when I wrote my book, not when they were under four. Um, and then once they leave the house, then there's like, oh my gosh, too much time. And how do we sort of spend our hours to feel fulfillment there? So I think that that's an interesting sort of thread that we can pick up on later. Now, in terms of within the day, what are those hours that we are at our best? Well, there's actually some individual differences here. I have a fantastic um, guest speaker who comes to my class, Dr. Uh, Alon Avedon, who runs the Sleep Disorders Center at um, UCLA. And from his research, he's like the sleep expert. And he shows and tells us that there are natural dis differences. Some people are more morning people. Some people are night owls. So there's the larks and the night owls. And you know what you are. Like everyone knows. I'm like, I am absolutely a lark. The morning is when I am at my best. I'm optimistic. I'm like thinking most clearly. Um, whereas others, actually, my husband is more of a night owl. Like it's when everyone is asleep, that's when his mind really starts going and he starts creating and um, is most productive. Uh, and so I, th I think actually the, <laughs> since we don't all have control over when those hours that are sort of we have available to do our best work is manage caffeine appropriately, get enough <laughs> sleep. But also, given that, and this is sort of taking us on a, a different direction, but absolutely related and relevant for this, is what are those activities during your week that are the most important? What are those activities that do require to be the most clear thinking? Um, what are those activities that do require your focus and care, but don't necessarily need you to be sort of creative and productive? And the reason it's important to recognize those activities, even though all of them are worthwhile, but they require different or demand different um, sort of modes of attention, um, is that the the book sort of leads to 
the second to last chapter is based off of all the strategies I share. How do you actually design or craft your ideal week so that you are placing the activities in their sort of best spot to catch you at your best? So as an example here, the work that is so important to me that I love so much, but is hard and it requires a lot of attention is writing. (laughs) And there's no way that I can write A, when I'm tired, because it takes me like five times as long and then none of my sentences are useful anyway. And if I'm distracted by whatever I hear the kids in the next room or, you know, like people are pinging me on my phone or I feel like I have to sort of hurry to a next meeting. Um, So I recognize that my writing time, I absolutely carve out for me because I'm a morning person and I need the kids out the door. So I'm not like thinking about them. It's like 9 a.m. to noon. And I don't get to do this every day because I do have other you know meetings and all that. stuff. So, so like two days a week, my 9 a.m. to noon, I log off of everything, close my office door, do not take meetings. And that is when I allow myself removing distractions to get into a state of flow. But for those times, like my date night with my husband, I want to also be really attentive and really focused. But my dates with my husband, if I put them on a Monday morning, I will be thinking about all the stuff I want to get done, not that sort of connection and presence. And so all to say, there's a lot of intentionality that should come into play understanding those activities that are really important to you, what pieces of them are demanding from you um, so that you can place them in your week, you know, schedule them into your week where they get you at your best for that activity. So I was just going to say, with what you just laid out, and we've talked about this over the course of the last three years about time blocking. So obviously, you're a big proponent of that. Absolutely. And you uh, and you take reasons, yeah, yeah, and then you take it, and this is another thing I picked up in in the book with what you just talked about is it's not only time blocking, but and this this takes people time to to figure out like, yeah, you know if you're a morning person or a night person, but even when you know that, you can go another level deeper to figure out what you just explained about what you what you would work best in within that morning period or that night period because. Even within that, those those sections of times, there's still things that you would be better at doing, say, earlier in the morning if you're a morning person or later in the morning if you're a morning person. Totally. Yeah. And interestingly, um, exercise is one of these activities that is has been empirically proven and anecdotally again and again that exercise is one of these activities that not only affects how we feel in the moment, but it has this mood boosting effect that carries over into subsequent activities. And so recognizing that if you carve out and protect time in the early morning for exercise, then that benefits you over the course of the rest of the day. And so even thinking not just about like, when in the day to do particular activities, but how do these activities interact with each other, right? So what are those activities that have carryover effects? Also, um, 
recognizing the psychology of hedonic adaptations. I don't know if you have covered this on the the podcast, but it's we have uh, Brian Portnoy is who I'm good friends with. His book uh, Shaping Wealth are um, uh, talk. He talks about that a lot when it comes to behavioral finance, if you will. Yeah. So hedonic adaptation is the fact that we get used to things over time. So when you do the same thing again and again, when you're with the same person over and over, they stop having as intense of an emotional effect on you. And not only does that happen over the course of years, but it also happens within our hours that we are most sensitive to an experience, sort of emotionally, we react to it at the beginning. <laughs> and then when, uh, as you're doing it, the emotional intensity wanes. Now, recognizing that is informative because it says, how should you sort of sequence your activities? How should you consolidate or sort of separate activities? Um, so for positive activities, you want to separate them because you want to feel the as intensely as as much of it as possible. So you want more beginnings, right? And so, like as a sort of very concrete example, watching TV, <laughs> you know, like four hours into an evening of watching Netflix is not actually feeling very fun anymore. Whereas yeah. that first half hour is delectable, right? Yeah. And so if it's sort of um, making you know, the good stuff spread out. So you have, not only are you feeling more of it more intensely because you have more beginnings, but you also have more to look forward to because not only do we experience our activities or events during it, but there's the anticipation of it. There's the recall of it. And so spreading out the good stuff and consolidating the bad stuff because then you have less beginnings that are intensely affecting and durable, right? But also you have less time spent dreading um, as, you know, one sort of example here is chores. Um, this idea, if you just do a little each night, it won't be so bad. That is terrible advice because the little each night as you're doing that chore, it's like, it's every time it's like a beginning. You're like, oh my God, I don't want to be spinning. <laughs> totally. And you're dreading throughout the week. You're like, oh, I have to do that tonight. And oh, I have to do that tonight. Whereas if you consolidate it all into like Monday nights or Wednesday nights, that's your time to get chores done. Then it's it's not affecting sort of you as intensely during that time, but it's also not affecting you as long in terms of anticipation and recall. So even some of those insights in terms of how do you sort of design your week and block your time um, and also actually understanding that there is an emotional residue, particularly of these sort of anxiety provoking or stressful activities. And so if you put something really positive after something that you know is not going to be fun, then that's great because it sort of cuts the emotional residue of that negative activity short, right? So Friday mornings, that's when we have our faculty, like all faculty meeting. Not all that fun. Like all my colleagues <laughs> one-on-one like on one are like fabulous, but in this setting, it's it's 
anxiety provoking. And so what do I do is I set a coffee with Al, for instance, directly. Is that your after. morning walk that you that he that he famously told me about? <laughs> yeah. Well, our boba tea where he would get candy and I would get boba tea. Um yes, because knowing that if you I sort of cut the effect of that um meeting, you know, by meeting up with a colleague that is really fun and fulfilling um and enriching, uh then there's something a to look forward to. And then the positive effect from the walk is what carries over, not the effect of the meeting. One of the the words that you didn't use when um, you were describing how to fit the pieces together uh, is awareness. And I don't care like how many conversations I've had now on this show, like awareness always comes up. It's like, it should be a drinking game. Like every time everybody says awareness, you just take a shot because it's like, that's what a lot of like life boils down to, especially when I have behavioral scientists like yourself on and talking about these types of subjects is if you can get to a point of awareness, it's like, I don't know if you're halfway there or what, but like, that's like the major first step. And I find that very similar when I'm working with people, um, not only in their financial life as an advisor, but their personal life as well, is just getting people to be aware that there's there are other options available to them and to not be so um, afraid like that analysis paralysis. I was just having this conversation with a colleague myself this morning about that, is that you know if you know what direction not to go in, don't go there. But then every other direction is is better than not not going not going anywhere and not moving at all. Yeah, yeah. And awareness, I I sort of describe it as being intentional and mm. deliberate. Um, and it's it's important. And I would actually sort of push it beyond just like reacting to what not to do. And in in a lot of the book, what I I provide exercises to help people identify like what is worthwhile like yes what is the stuff that you should avoid because um and actually if you do one of the exercises of time tracking over the course of the week yes that's writing, huge <laughs> yeah writing down um what you're doing so just as a financial advisor right like if you want to sort of get out of debt you track how your financial spending so you know where you're spending um, and places that you can cut and reduce your spending. But with time too, right, is writing down over the course of the week for each half hour, write down what activity you're doing. As importantly, is rating on a 10-point scale. How did you feel coming out of that time, that activity? And while it is tedious to track your time over the course of the week, it is so worthwhile because at the end of the week, you have this like fantastic personalized data set and you can look across your week and see what are those activities that made you feel the best and what are those activities that did not make you feel good. And also what's surprising is that there are surprises that when you're looking across, like my students, when they do this, they're like, I had no idea that that brings me such joy. And it's something that they actually sort of would dread, like exercise actually, for instance, and then they also had no idea that that activity, which they do, you know, quote unquote, for fun, it's their time being on social media, 
They're like, holy cow, it makes me feel terrible. And holy cow, I had no idea just how much time I was spending on it. So you can see, wow, these are these places that I'm spending. They do not make me feel good. And in many cases are not all that worthwhile. So yes, those are the activities to sort of steer away from and react away from. But I think more importantly is identifying what are those activities that are really fulfilling? What are those activities that are worth protecting your time for? And the time tracking helps you identify that. I also um, have other exercises that I have my students do and talk about in the book, like writing your eulogy. That is intense. That is project forward to the end of your life. And how do you want to be remembered? What do you want people to say about you? And while it is intense to sort of put it onto paper, it is so clarifying because what it reveals is what matters to you. You know, what are your values? What is your purpose? What are those higher order goals? And by taking that broader perspective of time, and actually Hal and I have a current project where we find that Folks who think about their time from this broader perspective, thinking about their years and their life overall, rather than hour by hour, um, report greater meaning in their lives, greater life satisfaction, and they report greater happiness in their days. And I think the reason for that is because by taking this broader perspective and thinking about years, it highlights what's important to you. And those values and understanding what's important to you then trickles down to influence how you spend your hours today. And this is, as you said, how in my work is so complimentary because that's the answer, right? It's not, I mean, he sort of lays it out of now versus later, but actually if you're thinking about your time more generally, it's about what matters to you now and later, right? And spending your time accordingly. Do you think it also has anything to do with the fact that like when you think about time in terms of like years, there's there's a sense that maybe if if I say I have five years to do something versus I don't know how many hours of, of uh, in a year that would be, like it's like if you look at it in terms of hours, you feel like you have all this time, but like if you think about it in terms of years, it's it's shorter just because it's a, a smaller number. Yeah, well, what's interesting is, you know, there's. And let me put this in perspective because I'm thinking about this and I've been thinking about it more and more over the last couple of years as my kids get older. And, you know, I have this book on on my desk here, 18 Summers. And if you think about it, like you only have 18 summers with your kids before they go off to college. And, but, but in the day to day, you get so absorbed in it. Like this, the truest truism of parenting I've ever heard. Somebody told me this when I first found out I was having triplets. He said, be very careful, Paul. The years are short, but the days are long. And yeah. I'm like, it, and that, that statement has hold, held up very true for 13 years come this Saturday when my triplets turn 13. <laughs> Yeah. And actually, it's exactly that quote that I was going to (laughs) say, which is it is so true. Right. It's 
And when we get absorbed in the hours of today and it's just trying to get through today, then we are very reactive. And it, it does feel like a slog and we aren't enjoying and soaking up and savoring um, the good parts of those days such that, you know, as the years have passed, as looking back and like, oh, I miss that. And in my work, actually, that's a, a big point of my work. Um, it, we were looking at, and it, I think the sort of insight came out of work where we were looking at the happiness that comes from extraordinary experiences versus ordinary experiences. So which makes us happier? Is it those sort of extraordinary life milestones, incredible vacations, you know, like going to a U2 con concert in the sphere, you know, like these extraordinary things? Or is it those simple, ordinary moments that are in the days of our lives? And what we found in our work is actually among younger people, they ex enjoyed greater happiness from extraordinary compared to ordinary. As people yeah. got older, they felt as much happiness from those simple, ordinary moments as the extraordinary ones. But it's not about age. It's about recognizing how much time you have left in your life, recognizing your lifetime as finite. And what that does is it makes us pay attention yeah. along the way. And what's important about this is that we found that even among younger people, when we led them to recognize they only have however many summers left, for instance, what it does is it does make them pay attention. It does make them savor and find the joy that is right there in the time that they're spending. And it's so important to do that. And I, in, in the book, I talk about this as well as I have my students do this is count. Count your times left to do something that you love. One of these ordinary things that brought you joy. How many times left do you actually have to do that? And in when I did that, like one of my absolute joys during the regular week are my coffee dates with my daughter. And this was something that was born out of a very functional routine on my way of dropping her at our preschool and me going into the office. I wanted caffeine. And so we would stop at the local coffee shop. But this mindless routine transformed into this like treasured ritual where it's time each week. It's just the two of us. She has her hot chocolate. I have my flat white. And it's time for us just to be. And now she's in elementary school. So it can't happen on that Thursday morning. It used to because school starts too early. So now we do it on the weekend. And that's fine. And what's super important to so like because it's such a mundane thing it's you know would be very easy for me to be like oh it's a busy week you know we're not going to go this week but I counted I counted how many times do I have left to have go out you know have a coffee date with my daughter she's now eight when she turns 12 as you with your 13 year olds, probably she's probably going to want to go to the coffee shop with her friends instead of me. So right. it'll be less frequent. And then she is going to go off to college. And I calculated that out of, so we've had 400 coffee dates in the past, about 236 in the future. That's about 36% of our coffee dates together left. That's much less than half. 
and she's only eight years old. Recognizing that is really important because what it does is it motivates me to make the time. No matter how busy I am, I'm like, absolutely, we're going to spend this half hour each week together on our date. And then it also affects how I engage during that time, knowing that this time is limited, that it makes me pay attention. So you were talking about awareness and I was actually wondering if you're talking about attention because attention is a really big deal. It's our happiness isn't just about those activities, but are we paying attention during the good stuff? And if we're not, then we're missing it. You're missing it, yeah. We're totally missing it. And so paying attention and what are those things that distract us? Well, our phones. So during these coffee dates, my phone is absolutely away. And research shows that even the seeing your phone is distracting because you think right. of all those other things you could and should be doing. So the phone is away. And also it's only 30 minutes. And so, but it's those so 30 brief. minutes are so impactful for how I feel about my life overall, right? The connection and relationship I have with my daughter is I mean, I spend more time with her than just 30 minutes a week, but those particular 30 minutes are huge. They're gold. They're gold. They're They're absolute gold. And so recognizing, doing the counting, seeing that there's so few times left is, is very clarifying and motivating in all the right ways for how we invest the time we have. It makes us spend the time on what matters, makes us pay attention during those times, And it makes us recognize that the answer for happiness and time isn't about having a whole lot more time available. It's actually about spending the time we have in ways that make it rich, make sure they have the impact. this This is a fascinating conversation or points that you're making because I was just having this conversation with a dad last weekend. Um, His son swims. My two girls are swimmers. And... I was where he was about a year ago where like we would have these swim meet, swim meets back to back to back weekend sometimes. And it's like, Oh my God, another swim meet. I'm like, but about a year ago, I, I, I got to this point with awareness and intentionality and thinking, okay, I only have so many swim meets left. And like, we've formed our own little ritual. Um, like when we go to swim meets, they're all local here in Metro Detroit. Sometimes we'll have to drive, but like we, there's a podcast that we listen to. Shout out to Josh Brown and Mike Backnick at the, at the Compound and Friends. It's it's the only uh, financial podcast that my girls will listen to, other than my own, which I don't even know if they listen to my own. But <laughs> you know, it's the the dad. I was talking to dad, and I'm like, you know, you don't realize. Like I I understand where you're at right now. But just flip that, like you just did. Like how many more meets do you have left? How many more years do you have left? you know, multiply that. That's how many you have. And it's like, oh, it's really not a whole lot. And I think it starts with that awareness, but then to build into the word that you use is intentional and and making sure that you're paying attention. Now, when I still, full disclosure, when I still go to the meets, I bring my laptop and I'm still doing some work, but, you know, I'm also, you know, cognizant of, of where the girls are at. I'm talking to other families, um, but it's it's one of those things where, to, to the point you were making earlier about the it, the ordinary moments, I think are more 
priceless or precious to me than those big vacations or or extraordinary moments. So, and I don't, I'm wondering if I can't relate because I'm I'm not, I'm no longer, I'm not a father anymore. I'm a father. Like if I didn't have kids, what would that be like at my age? So I'm 47 now, would I still feel the same way? It's kind of interesting thought because I think, and I may have had this conversation with Hal, or maybe it was Bruce Feiler who I had on um, earlier talking about life transitions is the fact that you, you, you do pay more attention because you know, the time is, is limited. And because of that, it, you feel like time's going faster when obviously, you know, it's not, but it's, my life is almost measured in the, the, the life of my kids, the stage that my kids are at. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it does because right now that is your source <laughs> of <my> joy. <laughs> like it's your world, but it's also your happiness, right? If I not ask always, you, but I I take it when I get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of like if you were to do the eulogy exercise, I yeah. suspect your kids would be a big part of that. There's something else that um this is sort of tying to. That I have um, my students uh, conduct interviews of someone who is closer to the end of their life, whom they really respect and um, view as having lived a successful and happy life. And this is sort of like the eulogy, but instead of projecting forward to the end of your own life and looking back, it's asking someone who has lived a really full life and for them to look back. And what I have my students do is ask them, what is your greatest source of pride? What is your greatest source of regret? And then over the course of the five years and however many sections of my course, I've been compiling and crowdsourcing of what are those sources of pride? What are the sources of regret? And the folks who my students interview, some of them have kids, some of them don't. All of them are very professionally successful, Um, but there's so much consistency in what brings them pride and it is their relationships, whether it is their children, whether it is their partnerships, whether it is those friendships that, you know, those friends that feel like family. Um, The greatest source of regret is not spending enough time with those people. And so I think, and this actually aligns with um, Robert Waldinger. Oh, yes. Yeah. We know Robert. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll let you finish. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I know, I know Robert's work well and have referenced it on the, on the show, but go ahead. Yeah. Um, So he's the director of the Harvard study of adult development. And he just um, wrote a wonderful book, um, A Good Life, which is pulling out insights from that work. And what did they find, you know, over at the end of these individuals' lives? um, What were those predictors of life satisfaction, of feeling like your life is happy? And it was not professional. It was not financial. It was whether they had strong, supportive relationships. And so all of that is to say that, yes, in the day in and day out, 
parenting and even our interactions with our kids aren't always super fun. But those relationships and that connection that is sort of the sum (laughs) of, and not the perfect average. So like, it's not the perfect, right? It's not like every minute sums up to determine the relationship you have with these individuals. Because as I said, that coffee date, those 30 minutes are way more influential on my relationship than, I don't know, (laughs) another 30 minutes, you know, at another point of the week or during another activity. Um, But it is those relationships and investing in them in ways, not just amount of time, and it's actually not even requiring amount of time. It is about the attention and intention and a little, little things can have big effects. Those little ordinary shared moments can have really big effects. And when you ask, and I'm doing some interesting work now, where it's asking people to reflect what is your happiest um, childhood memory? What are those? It's not those crazy vacations. No. Um, It is those moments, those little, and it's unpredictable which of those small moments is going to get picked up. But I can assure you that it is when all involved were paying attention. Yeah, I couldn't. I just when you just hearing you ask that question, I just think back to like, like for me, it was like going bowling with my dad on Saturdays in our league or doing like father son tournaments. Like it's I always just cling to that one. Um, If if I come back to the book, like the one thing. So I was already doing time tracking before your book came out and I read it. I think for me, the the additive that you already mentioned was, okay, tracking your time is great. And I think if, if, if anyone gets anything out of the book, which I highly encourage you to read, we're going to put a link to the show notes in it, start tracking your time. But then to go beyond that is to rank how you feel. I think that was kind of like an eye-opener for me. And it's funny because my girl triplet, Madison, whenever, when she gets back home, when she gets home from school every day, like one of the first things she asked me is like, how was your day? And she automatically knows like whether it was a good day or a bad day by how I react. And then she also kind of knows like, okay, well, what did you work on today, dad? And so if I'm like meeting with clients, if I'm doing the things in the business that I really like to do versus things that I don't, she knows that. And she, 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 she's like my, my North star, I guess, or, you know, when it, when it comes to that, which is, which is awesome. That's one of the things I look forward to because I don't know how many more years I'm going to have where she's going to want to talk to me about her day or ask me how my day was. But I come back to, is there anything else that in the book that you would want people to know, especially parents to take away from the book? Yeah. Um, I know that's probably like picking your your favorite child, but <laughs> no, it, it's it's picking up on what we've actually um, touched on already. Um, because the thing is, the answer for happiness isn't about actually being time rich. It's not about having a whole lot more time. We need to make the time that we have rich, and. Um, And this is uh, actually sort of going back to really one of um, a big motivator um, in my work was uh, 
my project with Hal, where we were looking at what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness. And we looked across data sets, including, including tens of thousands of working and non-working Americans. And we saw this consistent pattern where it was an upside down U-shape, which is interesting because with discretionary time, it means that happiness goes down on both ends of the spectrum. Yes, people with too little time are less happy. Those are the time poor of us. Those are, as we started this conversation, the working parents whose partner is also working um, of young kids. Having too little time is associated with less happiness because of the heightened feelings of stress. But in those hectic, hairy days where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't do it. I'm just going to quit everything. The answer is not to because there's such thing as having too much time. Those in our data set with more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in the day were also less happy. And that is driven by the fact that we are averse to being idle. That is when we spend all the hours of our day, day in and day out with nothing to show for it, it undermines our sense of purpose. And from that, we feel less satisfied. And so also what you sort of can see if you're visualizing this graph is that between two and five hours of discretionary time in the day, it's flat. That's saying that there's no relationship between how much time you have available for discretionary activities and your happiness. And so what this is all pointing to is, again, the point that I made that those 30 minutes are so important. The answer isn't about having a lot more time available, nor is it necessarily spending a whole lot more time on any of your activities to make them worthwhile. What it is about when you are spending the time being intentional, making that time count by removing the distractions during those times um, and just paying attention and soaking it up and savoring it. And the removing distraction is so that you can get into those flow states where you get your good work done when you're for you connecting with your um, uh, clients. For me, it's like digging into my writing and research. Um, And there's a lot of parts of the day that have to get done. Not so fun, but as long as you protect, and I'm sure even with your daughter, when she asks you, how is your day? It's not like every moment of the day you're doing your favorite bit of work, but as long as you did some of it, you spent some of those hours on the part of your work that really matters to you, then that's what has the big effect and sort of plays out. So it's not about quantity, it's about quality. So I I promised I would have you out of here within an hour. And so I'm going to get to my closing question. I ask all my guests, especially those that are parents, which is what is the best thing about being a parent? Laughter. My kids crack me up because I am always caught off guard with what, like what they're seeing in the world, how they're experiencing it and what they share. Well, Cassie Holmes, I cannot thank you for for spending the time with us on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. Um, author of Happy Hour, Happier Hour. Um, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Um, you won't regret it. It's a great read. 
And as Cassie mentioned, there are a lot of, it's a very interactive book, which I loved about it as well. Very different on the fact that you have these exercises in there and you can do them as you're going along. And it, it's super beneficial, especially for, you know, working parents that, you know, don't have a lot of time. This book is definitely worth the read. So Cassie, I can't thank you enough. And uh, hopefully we'll have another conversation in our future soon. Uh, well, thanks so much for having me. It was absolutely a treat. There was a lot in that conversation with Cassie on how to take concrete things away to implement in your daily life. And I highly recommend reading Cassie's book, Happy Hour, because the one unique thing about her book is that it gives you exercises while you're reading it to do, to try out. Trial and test, trial and test, see what works. But I think one of the things that people are going to find, if you try it, if you give it its due diligence, is to actually track your time. You will be shocked at where the time goes. And for a lot of people, it's that that source of being able to find what you want to do, what you like doing. And I think that was one of Cassie's point is it's not just enough to potentially just track your time, but how did you feel when you were doing that activities when you were doing whatever you were doing? Did it make you happy? Did it make you upset? Did you regret it? Those that's that's taking time tracking to a whole nother level a whole nother level, which I think could benefit a lot of people, especially uh, busy parents. So that's if I had one thing to take away from this conversation was to begin tracking your time. I started tracking my time a few years ago, and it's greatly helped uh, myself personally and professionally uh, with what I do and working with with families and trying to manage my own family with uh, my wife, Teresa, and our, our triplets plus one. So again, I can't recommend Cassie's book um, enough. I think there's a lot of golden nuggets in there. And hopefully you got a lot out of this conversation as well and, and a lot of great takeaways that you can begin implementing in your own lives. If you've enjoyed this conversation, could you do me a favor? Do you know anyone else who would enjoy these types of conversations where we talk about the intersections of our emotional and financial lives? Because if you do, it's actually going to help both of us. Could you share this conversation with someone? They will think you're great because you just gave them this terrific podcast and it helps me grow my audience. Or you can tell them to go to TamaCapital.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. That's all for this week. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon.